Welcome to the Go Big to Get Big podcast, where we are challenging six-figure earners to become seven-figure givers. My name is Randy Mullen, and each week, my co-host Steve Arneson and I are interviewing successful entrepreneurs, professional athletes, philanthropists, and other high-performing humans that are inspiring us with their stories. We go deep into uncovering how they have become successful and why generosity is an impact they want to leave on this world. Our mission is to have you leave this podcast wanting to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Let's not waste any more time and jump right What is into up? It. Go Big to Give Big community. Today, we have Kevin Estrada joining us. And man, this guy has a pretty incredible story. If you have a fear of flying, then you may want to skip the first few minutes of this episode because Kevin shares a story about getting drafted to the NHL, but never getting to find out his true potential because of an airplane crash that caused him too many injuries to continue. It's a heartbreaking story and will have you getting goosebumps as he shares about it. But they say when one door closes, another door opens, and Kevin has gone on to go create a very successful fishing charter company and become one of the biggest advocates for white sturgeon conservation, where he's been called to the House of Commons to speak, works with the government on adapting new policies, and is using his platform to not only build a very successful company, but bringing awareness to how people can better serve our rivers, oceans, and animals. He is also using his connections to NHL athletes to help combine his passion for fishing and charity by hosting events and raising money. This episode will leave you feeling inspired to fight through any struggle you may have faced and allow you to find a positive outcome in troubled times. I can't wait for you to hear this episode with the Sturgeon Slayer himself, Kevin Estrada. Awesome. I'm super excited to welcome our guest today, Kevin Estrada. Kevin, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. This is going to be an exciting interview for me because I've been able to come on a few fishing charters with you and been able to catch some big fish. So why don't you just take a sec and share a little bit about what the company is that you currently run, and then we'll jump into your story and how you got there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for obviously having me. It's it's great to be able to be, we'll get into it later on, but sort of what you've done to help through British Columbia and through the flood and your network of people has been has been monumental for us. But Sturgis Slayers, I, when I was at Michigan State, I developed a business plan around having something to do with outdoors and in 2008, I launched Sturgeon Slayers while I was still playing and just wanted to basically have a business to have after hockey. And, and now all these years later, it, we've garnered some international recognition for various projects we've done, TV shows and fish we've caught, and really just trying to advocate for a sustainable fishery that is a catch and release fishery only in British Columbia and sort of teach that next generation of proper fish handling and angling for iconic species here in, in Canada. That's awesome. And before you got into Sturgeon Slayers, you played for the show. You went to the, you got drafted to the NHL and went and played a lot of yeah. years in professional hockey. Walk us through just your journey in life, man. How did you go from starting out to playing some hockey to building a very successful Sturgeon fishing company? Well, I mean, I think part of it was being Canadian. Obviously, I grew up in Surrey and played hockey at a young age. Um, at 14, or just turning 15, I'd left home and played junior A. So I joined the Chilliwack Chiefs here, played four years here, 
was drafted to Carolina from um, Chilliwack and also signed a scholarship to Michigan State University. So went off to Michigan State, graduated there. And each year you're going to camps in Carolina, rookie camps, and then draft guys that are drafted and stuff. And so when I was done with, graduated from Michigan State after four years, signed with Carolina and played at NHL exhibition with them and then went to develop in the American League as a first and second year pro. When you graduate university, you're only allowed to sign a two-year deal as opposed to guys that come from WHL or OHL, they can sign a three-year deal. So you're kind of at an advantage with having another year under your belt as a rookie first couple of years to develop. And so we, I played two good years there, had a couple injuries and then, and then basically wanted to continue on with my career. But I, I didn't know if Carolina was the organization just based on that they had so many good players. They had won the Stanley Cup in our first year. Nobody was called up. Nobody was injured. The second year, they missed the playoffs by one point. So nobody was called up because it's kind of like the balance, right? If you're totally out of the playoffs, you get you give the younger guys a chance. They come up and see what they can do. And if you get injuries, the same thing. Or if you're so far of the lead, you know, and you're secured your spot, you can kind of get, get opportunities. And so I didn't get an opportunity with them. Ended up coming back home, signing in Victoria for the Salmon Kings, called up to the Manitoba Moose which is the Canucks team. It's a whirlwind in, in pro, right? Like a lot of people don't understand. There's a very rare percentage of people that just make it and go. And two of my best friends, Duncan Keith, plays for Edmonton. He played two years in the American League. People forget about that. Andrew Ladd was my roommate for the first two years in the American League. So these guys, you grind it out to try and get there and it's about opportunity. So I thought for me, the best thing to do was to go to Europe, develop back why I was drafted, which was my offensive skills, get those feelings back and then come back to North America. And I successfully did that. I went to Denmark. I was, I went with one of my best friends, Ash Goldie, who was at Michigan State with me and Victoria actually. And then captain of my team, led my team in points that year. So everything was going according to plan. And, and that summer ended up being in the plane crash. And so it's one of those things where to make it and to do anything in life, a lot of things have got to go properly. And according to plan, and if they don't, you've got to try and rejig your plans. Unfortunately, you know, as an athlete, any injuries can be catastrophic, right? It's not like I'm in a desk job and you break your shoulder and you can just keep doing your job, right? So I had neck injuries, shoulder injuries, knee injuries, tried to come back, couldn't, took two years off, tried to come back again, had four more surgeries. And then basically I've had a total of 11 surgeries now. At, I think 2013, 2014, I just said, I can't keep trying to come back, taking off time. I've got to, I've got to move on here because it's just, it's, it's a big hill to climb. And by then I was six or seven years into Sturgeon Slayers, right? So we were getting busier and I had guys working for me, but at the same time, people wanted to fish with me and they saw me doing the TV shows and stuff like that. And so that's part of the gig. And so we just launched deeper into brand awareness, what we were different than every other company and what we wanted to do and accomplish. And sort of that's been sort of the journey from a teenager up till now. I'm 39, turning 40 in, in May, of having that whole career and a totally different career path change, but it seemed to work, right? And, you, and, I, and for me, a big part of that was obviously the mental side is being able to know what I had learned along the way in hockey, ups and downs, going from being the top player in Bantam at 14 to, to only playing 35 games your first year in, in junior as a 15-year-old, you think you're a star and then all of a sudden you're not. And then all of a sudden my last year, I'm the top scorer in Canada in points in junior A, and then you go to university and you're getting a third and fourth line. So it's those constant ups and downs that you learn to deal with in life 
which carries over into everyday life, whether it's a marriage, kids, business, whatever that is. And a lot of people don't, don't learn those, those attributes and develop that character. Right. And so, so yeah, after all that, here I am and got lots going on. We're proud of and not many regrets other than the, there would have been nice to have a few more years playing hockey at a high level, but such is life. That's such a real story. So many people think that it's so easy to get there and they forget about the injuries and the ups and downs and life throws you a lot of curveballs and you've got to adjust when they come. And it sounds like you did a pretty good job of doing that. What was the inspiration between wanting to grow Sturgeon Slayers bigger while you were playing professional hockey? I know that was a tough decision for you while you're doing that. This company's making you money and you're doing it as a side hustle, but you're also trying to make it to the NHL. What inspired you to keep building Sturgeon Slayers while you were still playing hockey and balancing the two? Well, I think part of it is knowing each stats on each sport and how long they last, right? Football to baseball, to basketball, to hockey. And basically it's early thirties seems to be in hockey, the time where things catch up. Now there's guys that play 35, 40, you know, at a high level, Chelios into his forties, Yager, Chara, guys like that, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so knowing that I had to have something at the end, had I signed a big deal at 20 years old, would I have done the same things? I mean, you don't know, right? But I knew that I had to have something and I've always been driven by outdoors, uh, nature. There's a whole part of that that seems to be being more understood in the last 10 years. Anybody that talked about nature and energy and everything else 30 years ago, you seem like a quack, but I think more people are starting to get it, especially in the last couple of years. So yeah, I knew I needed to do something outdoors and fishing was a passion of mine and then and being able to protect a fish that's such a unique species and unique and having the best place in the world here in British Columbia just seemed like a good match to try and a niche thing, right? It's not just another trout fishery or another bass fishery or whatever. It's such a unique fishery here that's um, that's special. So I think that's part of it was that I needed to have something after it, but then also it was a unique opportunity with a species that it was not just started in any fishing company or guiding company. It was something unique. Can you quickly just share what a sturgeon is? So many people probably are thinking like, oh, they're, they're thinking maybe like a little trout or a little salmon. Like we're <laughs> talking ancient dinosaurs here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's set up for debate how long they've been around. 200 million years seems to be over 200 million years seems to be the consensus. We have the purest genetics in the world here of wild white sturgeon. There's other places in the world that have sturgeon, but they're supplemented hatchery fish. So we've got wild white sturgeon. And then there's the odd, there's the odd observation of a green sturgeon in the lower Fraser that's, that they say is closer to the estuary and stuff. And they live super old, right? We haven't done aging. So whenever we get a big fish, if there's a fish that's over 10 feet, everybody goes, how old is that? We haven't done enough aging is the truth on that. We, I've had some fish that are nine and a half feet that look like they're three or 400 years old. There was a shark going around on Instagram over the last couple of years, it was 465 years old or something like that. They'd got a picture of it in Greenland, I think. And that's what some of these fish look like. Some of them look super old and then you can get one that's over 10 feet or even our record fish last summer, 11 foot, six and a half. He looked old, but he didn't look as old as the one that I had caught a month later at nine and a half feet. They could get to a size and then just age, but not grow. Or just like anybody, you get six foot seven people and you get five foot five people, it all changes. They're still going at the same age growth rate. So 
Yeah, safe to say some of the bigger ones are 90 plus years old is what we've heard from the provincial biologist. And as we do more aging, we'll be able to get closer and closer, but we think that they could live up to 200 years old. Yeah, it's super interesting and it's hard to explain to people, right? Until they are there and fishing and sea fish. And even we've done a, a very big effort in the last several years to catch little fish, to try and get the data on that, to understand the health of the population. And people see how small this fish is, some of these little guys, and then they get to that size it's crazy. People go marlin fishing or shark fishing or any other fishing. They don't get this small. And then the next fish could be 300 pounds, right? Like it, it, you don't have that in a day-to-day fishery. If you're going for marlin, you're trying to get a marlin and you get a six foot marlin or seven foot marlin or five foot marlin. You don't get one that's this big and then go to exponentially twice the size of you as a human. That's not every day. We try to get people what they want, but, uh, but that's the uniqueness of this fishery. And it's super special to see the age classes of what we can catch along the way and there's always bigger it's a pretty fun fishery it's obviously family and kid friendly and the scenery is second to none out here Evan you've had you mentioned that you were the captain of your hockey team you mentioned that you were the top point producer I think it was in, in all Canada one one year as well with that comes a certain high element of leadership and mentioned that your buddies with we'll say Mr. Ladd and Mr. Keith yeah with all due respect and I think of with the Stanley Cup runs and championships and some of the best leaders in the league, even yeah. today. So how, maybe can you mention a lesson that you learned along the way through the hockey career around leadership and how your skills and leadership now have transformed into your business side of things? Yeah, I think you have to be tested, right? And it's not, you can develop everything and read everything that you want and read all the books and I've got them. Like I could read you all the books that I've got over there and motivation and business and real estate. And, but you have to be tested. And until you're tested, you don't know where you stand. And that's why a lot of people think they know people they know. And then all of a sudden, 20 years later, something big catastrophic happens and how they react to it changes your perception on the person, right? And some people surprise you and some people both ways let you down. And some people surprise you that you think they, they didn't have it in them. And so I think being tested is the biggest thing and trying to be out of your comfort zone to test yourself, to see how you react to those situations allows you as a person to be able to develop the characteristics and the attributes that, that allow you to overcome things in life, right? We've had a crazy amount of mental health and just restrictions on our world in the last couple of years and how people adapt to that is another test. Some people will come out of that stronger. Some people will come out of that weaker for life. It'll just let them cripple them. And so. So I don't know if there's a specific example other than if you live in a bubble and you're trying to always be safe, you're never going to learn. And there's really not a bad way of doing things. You're just going to learn different hurdles and different ways to do it. I've got 10 examples this week that I could give you on things that we've had to deal with as a business that you're going to have to overcome and find ways around it. And then eventually the way you do those things becomes what you are as a leader how you handle those situations. And yeah, that's why I think team sports is so good, especially hockey, right? I mean, people that don't know hockey won't get it, but if they understood the full game that, yeah, you can go get punched in the face for having something done wrong or some accountability, you can't get that in basketball. You don't get it in football. You don't get it in baseball. It's hilarious. Some of these guys that try and throw punches, but in hockey, it's a daily occurrence. There's an accountability to your actions. And, and anybody that takes liberties is going to have to answer the call. And so when you grow up in that atmosphere, there's definitely a level of, of confidence that you have in your ability to overcome certain situations because you've been pushed through them at a young age. And then as you get older, those become just part of the fabric of who you are. 
Can you tell me what happened in 2009? Yeah. So we were, I had just come back from Denmark, like I'd said, playing there. And I had offers from a bunch of different countries. In Europe, there's over, I don't know, 30 leagues in Europe. People don't know that, but it's a big deal. Like players can, you know, that NHL players that played here for a while can go over there and make more money, play half as many games easier on their body and extend their careers. Right. And so each league, the way it works, if you're in Germany, which I played one year in Germany, you've got three leagues in Germany and the third league, the winner of the third league goes up to the second league and the loser of the second league goes down to the third league. And so it all comes down. It doesn't mean the guys in the first league make more money than the third league because the third league could be sponsored by a big company paying big money to guys to try and move up because as they move up, they get bigger TV contracts. There's more fans. It's a business, right? And so over 30 leagues is a lot. There's a lot of opportunity if you have a good resume, especially coming from North America to get over there. So, so yeah, basically what I was trying to do was go over to Europe, get myself, keep those doors open, be able to have the opportunity to come back to North America or sign in other leagues in Europe, depending on what I wanted. So I had offers all over Europe and one of the, so I returned, I think in May and one of the business opportunities around fishing was, is that people were hiring me to help them or consult with them to help them get their fishing lodges going. And just basically the connections that I had developed in fishing allowed them to try and mesh those together to help their business. So we had been, I'd been flown in with a buddy of mine who was at the time, Todd Scarf, who was at the time the Sims rep, which Sims is a, Sims fishing is a well-known fishing company for waders, boots, and apparel. And we were flying into this lodge called Bear Lake Lodge outside of Kamloops. It's a remote lodge, family-owned, families from Chilliwack. The guy helped do some cabinetry in my house here. And and so I had a good connection with them. And when we got picked up at our cabin in Sheridan Lake, on the lake, flew out, talked with him about some stuff, looked around, did some fishing. And that night came back, the same pilot picked us up. There were some interesting things that didn't happen that should have happened during safety briefing. Some stuff felt a little bit off. Anyways, we took off back to Sheridan Lake to land. And, and as we were going over the lake, you know, I had mentioned what, what lake is that? And I had a family cabin on Sheridan for 30 years, but everything just looks so different up there. And there's so many lakes in the area. And he stole that Sheridan. And we made a hard turn coming around and straight down to land in an area that you don't land because there's a, an island and it's green on green. So you, the depth perception is not there. And usually the full planes that come in, come on this other side of the lake and so we did this hard bank and straight down and the plane that he was flying was actually not his plane. That plane is, he's usually flying a Cessna and this one, he was flying a Beaver, which was the brand new Beaver rebuilt only 20 hours on the engine, new hardwood floors. It was beautiful. And, and we came in steep, fast and basically nosedived. So he bounced once and then it was like hitting a wall. We, we hit, rolled, stuck under the water. Yeah, it was, and interestingly enough, I, everybody reacts different to scenarios, but everything did seem super calm in that it wasn't like a panic scenario. And so even when the water was up to our shoulders in the plane, I was still incredibly calm because you're not thinking, you know, this is, you're, you're dying here. You're just thinking, okay, what's the scenario? Why can't I open this door? I've flown in lots of helicopters, bush planes, and what's going on here. And, um, and find out later that when you're in a crash, everything shrinks, right? So that's what they say. If you're going to crash, open the door. It's one way that you're going to be able to get out. So I couldn't open that door. We were kicking it. And then as the water's rising, you can't kick the door open. The plane was like this, the front guys were under the water and the plane was completely submerged, but it was not coming in as fast as the very back. 
So my buddy Todd was kicking the door and ended up getting the back door open and we got out, I got out, he got out and we turned around. The pilot wasn't moving. He was looking for life jackets and stuff like that. And so I went in there, told him to get out, let's go. And he's an older fella and, and dragged him out onto the wing. And then we had waited for some people. Todd had, you know, blood all over his face. He was in the back seat and I had a different restraint on, but had hit my elbow, which was shoulder, my knee. And then of course, with the neck stuff, it's got lots of issues in my C2, 3, 4. And it was one of those scenarios where it's definitely life-changing. You're happy to walk away from it, but in a flash of an eye, your life changes. And I'm not the first person that's happened to. It's happened to a lot of people. And like they always say, it's how you react to any situation which actually determines the outcome, right? Your reaction to any situation could be 90% of what happened and only 10% is what would actually happen, right? So it's I'd love to ask like the yeah. fear that might've been there. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and business people, especially in the early days, we have to deal with fear on a daily basis almost of the fear around being successful or failure or picking up that phone and asking for a million dollar check to go and do an investment piece working with different organizations and stuff there's every individual has their own unique aspect of what fear means to them what does fear mean to you i'm guessing there was some moment of fear there but what what does fear mean to you now yeah it's a good question i mean in that scenario i was super calm i was actually when we would swim out the plane, I looked at Todd and his lip was bleeding and I laughed and I'm like, did that just happen? No different than throwing a ball and hitting your buddy in the face or something like that. And he didn't mean to, it was, I can't believe that just happened. We were still coherent. We were still checking for pilot. We were still moving around. We were getting on the wing. We had got some rope out to tie up to a boat. We were doing all the things. It wasn't like we were completely in shock and disabled, but it was, that's interesting. That just happened, right? That's a life moment. And he just took it in. For me, fear, yeah, I, I'm i not going to say that I'm fearless, but I think I'm, I've am i gone through enough and I think as, and it goes back to my point of getting yourself out of a comfort bubble. You've gone through enough that there's really nothing that really is fearful to you. Though I respect my daily job. I respect the water a lot. Uh, there's some parts of nature that is definitely has to have you on point. When we're out there as much as we are, accidents can happen. You're in a, a very powerful river. So I wouldn't call it fear, but there's definitely respect to that. And I'm on that water a lot. And so when it comes to fear in business or relationships or raising kids and all that sort of stuff, I don't really fear. I don't feel it as fear. I just, I just think every day has got a new challenge that you have to accomplish. And I really don't see it as fear. I tell you, if I was scared of something, I would tell you, there's always, are you going to pay your mortgage? Can we've gone through two years of being crippled in the tourism industry with regulations, right? But you got to figure out how to juggle that and might take an extra five or 10 years to get out of debt or to get to the next level. But is that fear? I think there's a lot of people in the world that would love to have that problem to be able to go get a mortgage to then pay bills. It just doesn't exist in countries, right? So yeah, I don't think it's fear. I just think it's more about just developing, like I said, that those attributes that can carry you on so that you're maybe not fearful and just, it's just another task and another thing that you got to accomplish and get over. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one of the things that I would love to just change up and talk a little bit here is just your passion for wanting to help people. And obviously you're an example of what we talk about in this industry of a for-purpose business and you use your business for a lot of good and a lot of helping. And one of the things that you do is you've teamed up with Andrew Ladd for the Ladd Foundation. You found a way to pair sturgeon fishing and raising money for charity. Just walk us through how that 
came together and what that looks like now for you guys? Yeah, Lad Foundation is a great one because Andrew, as he went through his career, him and Brandy wanted to do something. They didn't know what that was. It, they weren't really sold on just doing another golf tournament. And so we wanted to pair up something that, that meant something that was unique, offer something that was more personal, personable and do good. So what we've done is, is raise awareness and some resources for sturgeon conservation which goes into things like side sling cradles for better handling of fish, tags and scanners, and days to pay professional data collectors to go and get uh, juvenile sturgeon to find out where we are with the fishery. All those things are important. And so, and then on the flip side of that is mental health, which has been a big thing that Andrew and Brandy have been passionate about. It's becoming more and more relevant in the last couple of years. And they've got a new program now out through the Lag Foundation that they're doing a lot with young kids and athletes and, um, and it's, they're releasing it. I'm not going to speak too much on it, but there's a lot coming out that you'll see. And there's a lot of NHL players involved in telling their story on their side of mental performance. And so they've done an excellent job with that and and we're going to keep doing it. We've had some obviously hiccups with COVID and travels and being able to do it the last two years, but we're slated this August to do it again, and and we're looking forward to having the event and just raising awareness on both sides of things that are very important to us. That's awesome. It's so cool to see that. I think this industry needs a lot more of that charity. It becomes so monotonous with golf tournaments and just always asking for capital and raising money. And I think that's something creative that you've brought to the market of, hey, I've run a sturgeon fishing company. And I'm going to pair it with somebody who's got some name value to it. And we're going to come together and raise money for foundations and charities. And I think that's one of the coolest things. And why I was so excited to have you on this podcast is being able to help people become aware that you don't need to be super successful. You don't need to have the stuff. You just need to be able to pair the right people together to make something happen. I know you're really big on giving back. And one of the things I wanted to dive into as well was in, in BC, we just had some big floods here. In the, in the winter of this year. And you and your team were the first to jump up and start getting on the water. You're a part of the Guiders Association in the Fraser Valley. And you and your team stepped up before any government stepped up. You were the first on the water and you were just doing anything possible to help your community. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about what you guys were able to do. Can you walk us through what went through your head when we, we started seeing the floods and being the first guys to jump in the water and go be supportive. Yeah. Again, that's another one of those lifetime moments, right? None of us have gone through that. You see it on the news all the time of another tornado or an earthquake in some other foreign part of the world, right? And then it happens here. And we, I was actually in the water the day it happened with some really good guests that were fishing with me for four days. It was the last day of their trip. And I just looked at Tim and Vicky and I'm like, every November we get a bit like this and we'll just stake it out a little bit longer. And then we started seeing trees and then water was pounding out of the mountains. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go. We should go now. And by the time we had left and got on the highway, there was already three avalanches on the highway that we had to dodge around. And then we turned all the way back around to Hope, took the Agassiz Highway. And we just had passed it within 10 minutes. They'd had the Agassiz slide, which shut down the highway for weeks, right? And trapped everybody. So had I been trapped in there, at some point I would have been able to relaunch my boat, get down to Chilliwack, get fuel, start the whole thing up again. But uh, yeah, we sat there trying to figure out what was happening. It took a day or two to figure out actually what was going on. We didn't know there was all these people trapped in hold. So I think on day three, one of our guide association members, Steve, was up here and Steve and I talked and we're like, 
we got to do something here, right? And he's like, yeah. So we're the only ones that can do anything. The province is completely in, wrapped up in red tape. They never dealt with this. They're good with fires, but not with floods, right? And so, so yeah, we sent an email out to the membership who wants to help. And then there was not just us. There was locals. There was people that had jet boats that were just anglers out there and jet boat enthusiasts that were helping in their areas that they could. But we had a coordinated effort for sure. We had two command centers, one in Yale, one in Chilliwack, coordinating on a group on the phone, group text, and everybody had their job. And it was basically like, it was very impressive to see you're dealing with a lot of people that are self-employed business owners. So they get it. They took direction. They put the egos aside and we just got it done. And we had tasks done for everybody, whether that was medical treatments over here, picking up propane tanks and debris, people out of hope, cancer treatments. It was nonstop back and forth. Like it was incredible. And even last week I did a presentation. I called, was called in as an expert witness for the House of Commons for the Standing Fisheries Committee, because they wanted to know more about on the fish side and what could be done and done better. And I I wasn't overly nice because I, as I was writing my speech, I kind of got back into the moments of talking with you about, you kept saying, are you guys getting any help? It's like, no. We're not getting any help. And despite being national news and everywhere, help wasn't coming. Eventually we did get some fuel, but there was, yeah, it was definitely a lesson in, in how people can come together in a community that made me very proud and this guide association. And then also on the other side, how much the government cannot help. Um, the government is way too wrapped up in red tape. And luckily we had some good partners in Global Medic who does worldwide help and the guy that i was talking to there raul he's just says don't let do what you can try and get some people that can't help but that will give some resources to get you guys doing it and just go do what you can you can't rely on the government in these situations so that's what we did and it was uh organizations and people like you guys that gave to us to help i think a lot of guys would have done it but we wouldn't have been able to sustain continuing to do it. We, we were on day 35 and I'm sending tweets out to Trudeau and Horgan saying like, where are you guys? You just had a meeting here in Sumas and you're talking about matching funds. Who are they going to? Because there's no RCMP boats. There's no COS boats. There's no search and rescue. It's like, where's this money going to, right? It, other than a nice photo shoot. And so when you guys gave generously three times, that kept us going and allowed us to sustain a longer we had guys taking time off work. We had guys, some of our members are policemen, firemen, teachers. They were calling in sick days just to help out and do whatever they could. And so being able to cover some of those costs and equipment that we needed to go forward was definitely helpful and appreciated. That's something that I've seen continuously from you. It's just your willingness to step up as a leader in these spaces and create that. And I know Steve's got a question here that he wants to ask you around that, but I was just curious, like, Do you think that's just your natural instincts as a leader to, when you see something like this happen, to organize and go into place and automatically put people where they are? Like, did that come from your hockey instincts and skills of being captain on the team and leader to just transferring into everything you do in life now and going forward? Yeah, I definitely think that is part of it for sure. And at a young age, you learn discipline, right? It's a different world. I think each decade that goes by, even when I was an older guy in the team, seeing 20 year olds, they were a little bit different too. I think I'm happy the generation that came up that I played with in hockey and the coaches I had, they were allowed to be harder on us. They were allowed to not watch every word they said. We had to grow up with tough skin. And that allowed us to develop into who we are now. And I think that changed every year, right? You started to hear of more things changing. Some are, yeah, for the good. 
but sometimes you just need to suck it up and, and have some thick skin. And so, yeah, for sure. That's been my nature, whether I was born with that or developed that, I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I think parenting probably comes into that friends, family, everything. Right. But that's been sort of who I am and it's hard for me to take a back seat in anything. Right. So there's good and bad to that. Right. Obviously there's the leadership side, but also it can be confrontational. If I see something that I don't like, I have to speak up and that can also be people don't take that always the right way, even though the intentions are good. So, um, yeah, no, for sure. And it also is, I've got to watch it too, right? I've got to make sure I'm in my sauna and doing my yoga and breathing exercises because when I see what's happening in the world the last couple of years, especially in Canada, I've had a hard time dealing with it, right? Because I do believe I can make change. And so when I see people that kids that are having issues because of mandates and adults and people being forced into taking something for their jobs, I mean, for me, it hits me hard because I believe that there should be there should be something that we're on this planet, especially in Canada, that, that revolves around freedom. And when we start having seen that from a young age and the repercussions going up into older people and then the horror stories of people not being able to see people dying and their, and their grandparents and parents and stuff like that over what? Uh, after two years later, knowing what we know now on the latest science, it just didn't make sense on not seeing people. And so... I have a really hard time with that. And so I, again, that comes down where there's some good and some bad because I feel like I can make change and you've got to sort of, uh, make sure you're balancing that sort of act out on how much change you want to make and how hard you want to go. Right. Kevin, it's been an incredible just hearing all of these stories here so far. I've kind of heard it through Randy a little bit because you guys have chatted numerous different times, but it's humbling to hear. I just want to kind of tap into a bit of your emotion and just ask you like, it seems like you've just been successful at everything. Like everything that you're just like, yep, sweet. Like, do you need a bottle? Done good kind of thing. What does success feel like for you? Well, true success is being able to have the time and freedom to be able to do what you want. And so if you're striving to be able to do that, then I think, and you have that, I think then you're successful. And so creating an environment around you that, that allows you to be able to enjoy yourself, be able to, to, bring yourself down when you're high and bring yourself up when you're low, it has nothing to do with your environment has to do with money and whatever environment you create and stuff like that, but doesn't necessarily have to be success is owning your own time. And if you can get to that point, it's been made more the last two years, there's going to, this is going to go on forever on, on the lessons learned. But if you wanted to have a choice and you were self-employed in whatever side of the coin you were on, you had a choice. Now you had repercussions of that choice based on mandates. But if you didn't own your time and you were a, an employee or a government worker, you were forced to do something that is a humanitarian. That's a big deal. And if you had never, if you had never gone out and been self-employed or owned your own time or owned your own, you're seeing now, especially in Canada, that you don't even own your own body. And that's a big deal. Again, not to hijack this whole conversation and where we're going with it, but success to me is being able to have that choice one way or the other. And I've been able to do that. Nothing has been easy for me. It's an Instagram world we're living in. So you see one part of it, but you don't actually know all the intricacies and stuff that goes around it. Um, but the good comes with the bad and the bad that's there, you have to be able to, again, turn it around and figure out what you can learn from that to go forward. And it sounds like a cliche, but if you let the bad get to you, then you're going to continue to fall. So you don't, I don't really have an opportunity to fail. I can't fail. 
or else the house doesn't get paid. The cars don't get paid. The kids don't get food. You actually don't have an opportunity to fail. So what scares me is in the climate that we're in right now is that we've a lot of things have changed and I'm just hoping that people have the motivation to get out of it. I think a lot of people like working from home and taking the CERB checks in Canada from the government and all these things that are easy, but in the end, they're going to end up killing their soul, right? And so I, I think that for people to be able to change their mindset out of this, mindset is going to be a big one as we move past COVID and, uh, and make sure that people are motivated to carry on and not just stick in the past that we've been put in this box for the last couple of years. That's awesome, man. And just really love the way you speak about everything and the leadership that you bring on to everyone around you and I'm sure into your kids' lives and everything around you. I'd love to go deeper. We got to jump into what we call our giving round as we wrap up the call here. So these are just rapid fire questions about giving and just basically one word or one sentence answers. You ready? Yep. Brag on one charity that you like. Oh, geez. The closest one that I have is the Lad Foundations is that we're connected with. Yeah. Right on. What would get you more excited? Writing and donating a million dollar check to Lad Foundation or spending a week physically helping other people? Ooh, I think donating the money and then spending the week with them. <laughs> Good answer. Who inspires you with their giving? I think it's a lot of people. Definitely what you guys have stepped up and done has is, is been huge. And that mentality, more of the mentality of that, as opposed to a single person or group, the mentality of giving, not everybody could get in a boat and drive it and help people, but people can do things from around the world in their own way and not just money in their own way to give back. So more of that mentality. Do you think people should start giving from the beginning of their business or after they've seen some success and have some money in the bank account? I think they should be giving in any way that they can. doesn't mean financially, but they should be involved in their communities. And again, that creates that environment, a good environment. Giving can come in so many different shapes and forms and sizes, free programs, mentorship resources. What's one unique way that you give back? Probably making people mentally tougher on the boat. <laughs> and a little bit about that, but I get guys that come out with me for a week at a time and if, I, if there's a teenager, I think is a little bit soft. I try and toughen them up by the end of the week and just more of a mindset thing that I can pass on in any way that I can and maybe help people become more connected to their surroundings. I can attest that when you're reeling in a few hundred pound fish, you get mentally <laughs> tough pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not helping you. You're on your own. In just one word, describe the feeling that you get when you give. Warm. Awesome. Love that. And the final question we have for you that we ask all of our guests do you believe that money can buy you happiness? Yes. Why? I think, again, it comes down to the environment, right? And so selfishly, if you're somebody that likes to help other people and give to causes, that can bring happiness. If a desire like me, a, a, a residence in the mountains that are away from people and clean air, that takes money. The more money you have, the more ability you have to help. And so I don't really like the term money doesn't buy happiness because I could tell you 20 ways that it does and how it changes life. And one of them, if you had money, then you had options in a humanitarian crisis over the last two years. So that was one big way that if you had money, you had options as opposed to not having options. So long-winded answer, but uh, but yeah. I absolutely love that, dude. And you're such an example of what we try and preach. And I cannot thank you enough for your time coming on today, sharing your stories and just being a true example of what go big to give big means. So thank you for coming on, Kev. 
thank you guys. And thanks for getting this podcast going and bringing the awareness to not only Canada, but worldwide. So um, I look forward to watching more podcasts that, that you guys are going to get involved with in any way that I can help. Let me know and I'll try and help with some good guests. Right on. Appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you so much, awesome. man. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the show. If you know someone who's an example of Go Big to Get Big, we would love if you could share this with them. We want to get our message out to as many listeners as we can, and it all starts by having people like you share it with your friends. Also, if you enjoyed the show, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star review. It's a simple act of giving that is free for you, helps us grow our message, and in return, allows others to find us sooner. And until the next episode, remember, always go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profit.